Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or of course Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is show number 942. Niall Kitson, our editor-in-chief, joining me as always. Niall, you are scaring the bejesus out of me with this first story because rent is scary and now you're saying AI? It's like, uh uh-oh. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in the in the states, it's not so good. Uh, this is a story that has fascinated me because for a country that is so obsessed with free markets, the more I learn about you know different sectors in America, the more I learn that the market isn't free at all. Um, I'm looking in particular at a report by ProPublica, um, which you might be familiar with. They're sort of a a, a not for profit journalist. Journal, investigative journalists uh, or an organization for investigative journalism, even. Um, they did a report on a company called RealPage, which is based in Texas. And what they do is they use, uh, they gather data from absolutely everywhere about a, a rental market and suggest the absolute maximum amount of rent the landlord can charge. Right. So this can be based on, you know, if you've got one apartment in a building, it can look at, okay, what are other people charging for in the building? What are people charging nearby? All this kind of thing, you know? And uh, if you're a landlord, that's pretty useful, pretty useful piece of software, I guess. However, most uh, for rent tenancies in the States are managed by only 10 companies. Ooh. That's that's not a lot of customers that RealPage needs in order to have a cartel, um, because what you have is the same AI, the same algorithm, looking at the same data and giving the same output to a very small number of companies about what rent should be charged for what property. That's scary. Because when, is, you, when you started talking about this, I was kind of, ah, oh, yeah, okay, so we're getting into Ryanair and the airlines and then they charge per seat and it all depends on the demand of the day and stuff and, the, and they'll extract mm. every penny out of it. And then I was like, but you're, there's so many different people renting and, and rental companies and everything. it'll never work. And now you give us this. Yeah. Now, if it was a market of, you know, lots of individual landlords or accidental landlords or what have you, you know, that's one thing. Um, because, you know, that kind of software just would, would be out of their reach. Hmm. Instead, you've got a consolidated market uh, where they all seem to be using the same software to come to the same conclusions. It's not good. So there's a lawsuit <laughs> in the work. Please, God, please, God, it will never come to our shores because, you know, things are bad enough as it is. We definitely don't need that. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere in news today, I have a story for you. A company called Wing, who I believe are from the States, uh, are into, they do private chart jet rental and all that kind of stuff, but they're mm-hmm. getting into the drone delivery market. 
Mm-hmm. And what they've done is they, they've designed their drones so that they actually look like little aircraft and stuff like that. That's a nice system. It, it's not anything particularly new. Uh, but they've been working in the United States. They've been working in Finland and they've been working in Australia. Um, they are now going to be coming to Ireland. Yay! Well, hey. Before you there, get excited, a- they're coming to a very specific part of Ireland called Lusk. Dublin? Lusk. Lusk. No, not even Dublin. Lusk. <laughs> okay. Right. That's I think the what they're doing is it's just interesting we're getting that kind of drone delivery kind of stuff. And I love the little expression store to door in 15 store minutes. Fantastic. Well, I am always reminded of um, that viral video Domino's put out and, you know, how to make sure your delivery, your delivery comes by drone. And it looked very complicated. It was basically like set up a landing pad so, so the drone could figure it out. But I will say that via, uh, over COVID, um, uh, there was a company in England used drones to ferry medication from one hospital to another. I was like, that's really clever. Yeah. I, I, uh, I and there's an Irish company called Mana. Uh, that does drone mm. deliveries as well. And I think they got into something similar. Um, so plenty of plenty of uses out there. I'd be interested to see yeah. what this crowd do, whether they stick to groceries. Uh, I actually don't know. Whether, I don't think it's going to be a commercial service uh, particularly. I think they're using Ireland as a base into the EU. So oh, okay. they're going to run their trial and then they get their license from the Irish Aviation Authority and then da 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 and then they roll it out across the EU. So we wait and see. But it's nice to see. There's a, ni- a nice bit of uh, interesting drone tech happening in the uh, in the country. Also mm-hmm. this week uh, we are um, marking ten years of since the launch of Windows Eight. Yeah, this is a great little article on um, Ars Technica by Stephen Sanofsky, a name that we haven't mentioned in quite some time, uh, because he was head of Windows at the time Windows 8 came out. Oh, dear. So this was pretty much his baby. <laughs> and uh, he he has a, a sub stack as well where, you know, it's, uh, where journalists go to monetize their mm. their work. But he's been doing something uh, on Windows, sort of talking to a lot of people, uh, getting their impressions and their memories of of Windows, and he's kind of he's got an interesting take on it. And you might agree, you might not, but his argument is they did too much too soon. They did too much all in one go, and one of the problems they had was that they took this whole approach of what the next billion. PCs will be and how will they look, right? And the thinking was, well, the next billion PCs aren't going to be PCs. They're going to be smartphones. So we should do something that is more like a smartphone and put it on a desktop, Uh, which in theory sounds fine, but for the fact that people like desktop computers. Mm. They don't want another mobile phone. It's not even that. It's, I, they just completely forgot about the form factor, as it were. A desktop mm. works a certain way. A phone works a certain way. Do you know what I mean? Touch is completely mm-hmm. different than having a, a keyboard beside you. And I, I think that's where they went wrong. I think some interesting lessons have been learned between Windows 8 and Windows 11. You can ignore the tablet functions on Windows 11 quite happily. You can you can live a full life and not, not, not bother with it. But some of the things that they learned was how to optimize things like the keyboard 
so that you actually do get sort of a nice tablet-esque experience mm. if you happen to have a, a folding or a hybrid uh, laptop. And I think um, it's probably still a bit uh, a bit ambitious. I think in a few years, we might look back on dual, uh, dual screen folding devices and go, do you know what? We can see what they did, but it just didn't didn't pan out in the end. Mm. Um, like the, uh, like Microsoft's Kin, which is, which is the dual screen smartphone that they have. And um, actually a little toy I'm playing with at the moment, I'll talk to you about in a few weeks as well. Uh, so I think there probably is something to that too much too soon, but they, they made the cardinal error of assuming people would want the PC to be the same as every other device you're using. Um, PCs want to be PCs. That's it. Let them at it. Yeah. Well, they're they're used for for a certain reason. I like PCs because I sit down and I'm working. So I've got the keyboard, I've got the mouse, I've got the bigger screen, da da da. But then I love my phone. I use it all the time, but in a different way, accessing the same information, the same things, but in a different way. So mm. I think form factors is the thing you've got to. Anyway, listen. That was then. This is now. Um, actually, something that happened. Another story that came up this week. Something that happened a number of years ago. That has kind of come uh, to the fore again. I mean, we all know how bad it is when your phone is like it's hacked or you get a virus or something on it. Like somebody's been in there without your permission. Okay. Yeah. In 2014, something worse than that happened. Okay. Many millions of people across the world woke up to phone find that on their iPhone was the brand new U2 album. Whether they wanted it or not, <laughs> the new U2. And if you wanted to get rid of it, you couldn't. <laughs> Mm. Anyway, Bono, of course, is is flogging his book. He's out now at the moment. Uh, and within the book and in an interview during the week, he finally apologised for the free iTunes YouTube album. He said, it wasn't Steve Jobs' fault. It wasn't the rest of the band. It wasn't Paul McGee. It, wasn't, it was all me. <laughs> he said he, well, had to, he had to talk Steve Jobs into it because Steve Jobs is kind of thinking, well, iTunes, we sell music. And Bono's like, nah, I can just give it away. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? I never listened to that album. Did you listen to it? I don't even remember the name of it, to be honest. So, no, I didn't. No. Uh, and I think, you know, giving away your music is one thing, but actually pushing it at people is another. My favorite, one of my favorite stories about bands and musicians, Radiohead. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, they did something very unusual once upon a time where they released their new album on a website and they went, just, you know, download it, pay whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So 90% of people paid zero. All right. Yeah. 10% of the people did pay for it. Okay. And the 10% of people that did pay for it made more money for the band than all of their other albums combined. Wow. So just the music industry and a lot, well, not just music industry, business is full of middlemen. I mm. mean, you look at the milk that is sitting on your shelf, okay? And just trace that back from the cow and look at the, the there was a man who had to milk the cow. All right. There's another man who has to get the milk from the farm uh, to the dairy and then the dairy has to do something to the milk and then they've got to package it and then it has to be delivered and then it goes into a shop and then shop have to stock it. And all these middle people have to be have to be paid. Like, you know, it's uh, it's crazy. Anyway, let's wrap up with uh, Elon Musk. OK, and I, I don't really want to get into this because I think it's been covered plenty during, during the thing, but I want to get your summary of it because you have a wonderful one word summary of Elon Musk choosing to pay $44 billion to buy Twitter or to go to court. He decided to bet it, buy it. And you said? Oh, I did, what? That he's an idiot. There you go. 
That's the news for this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown <laughs> on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, news, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. We all know that there is more to learning a skill than cramming material from a textbook in order to pass an exam. Getting it to stick, however, can be another thing altogether. So what's the best way to make sure that you can hold on to what you've learned and what happens inside your brain as facts and skills become second nature? Stella Collins is co-founder and chief learning officer of Stellar Labs, and she had a chat with Niall Kitson about the neuroscience of learning. Stella, the first thing I kind of have to ask you about is where the nickname of Brain Lady came from. Uh, immediately, it sounds kind of um, patronising to me, but it actually has a, a proper root. It does. Um, there was a group of, of women that I've I've been working with uh, uh, for a few years, and um, I think we were actually called the Brain Ladies by Herr Driessen, who works in um, the Netherlands, and he just said, you know, you're all ladies, and we were going to a conference, and we kind of needed a way, and we were speaking together, and we kind of needed something to describe ourselves, and we just said, well, let's be the Brain Ladies, and it's kind of stuck. <laughs> well, Important to get that out of the way. But, you know, your your heritage with all things uh, neuroscience extends all the way back to the, the start of your academic career, really. And I, I think looking at where you've gone and from where you've started, you always seems to have been quite systems driven or there, the science has always been in the background there. So tell us a little bit about where you've come from. So science for me is, is hugely important. I'm actually an artist with a scientific side as well. Um but for me, science is really important because it shows that we, you know, we can find evidence for things so that we're not wasting time, money, energy on doing things that don't work, that we know don't work. Um, and we are test, able to test new things, you know, this great new idea. Can we test whether it works? And then we're able to say, well, look, you know, there's, there's sufficient evidence here to say this is actually probably a really good way to work. So let's do this. And what I also find with with clients and people we work with is when often they've been doing the right thing, but when they can sort of see that there's a scientific evidence behind what they're doing, it A, makes them feel more confident and comfortable, but also enables them to go back to other people in their organization, in their business and say, look, you know, we're doing this because there's actually some really hard evidence behind it. So it enables people who... Um, you know, may have challenging conversations with more senior people. Sometimes it gives, it enables them to, to, to show the evidence, to prove that they're, you know, they're not just making it up. It's all real. And this is very much um, where the role of data and contemporary technology comes into things. Uh, I know one of your projects at the moment uh, with your company, Stellar Labs, is looking at developing a platform. So we're developing a tool that will um, support learners to learn more effectively because we know that there's a lot of evidence that, you know, a lot of people don't really know how they learn. So we want this tool to kind of guide them in a much more effective way than if they're just given access to, you know, the latest LMS and they've got all this information, they don't quite know where to start. So there's an element of of guidance for that. And then also the other piece that we're building is a, a learning design tool so that people who aren't experts in learning, people who are, you know, they're experts in their field, they're subject matter experts, domain experts, they can actually design learning 
because often what they're doing is teaching, you know, the kind of the, the organization's really important secret source um, so that they can design training that really supports the learning process so that they're able to pass on their knowledge, pass on their skills to, you know, the next generation, the people coming up behind them. You brought up that term there, effective learning, uh, as opposed to, I don't know, ineffective learning is, is sort of what we're stuck with at the moment. So <laughs> explain a little bit uh, about the origin of the term and what makes it unique. I, I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it's actually unique, Niall, but for me, effective learning is learning that you can actually, you know, you've got a purpose in mind. You want to learn to do something. I'm, I'm kind of very focused on in organizations, particularly, you know, you're learning to do something. You're not just learning because it seems like a fun idea, um, which you might do outside of, of your workspace, but there's always a purpose for wanting to learn. So effective learning is, you know, you set off with some kind of purpose, a mission, a, a goal, you know, it might be you have a career goal, or maybe you just need to learn to be able to do your job better, or maybe you'll get pay rise if you learn this thing, or maybe it's just, you know, it is interesting, but it is related to what you're doing. And it's about making sure that that time and energy and effort you put into learning actually enables you to reach your goal. Because I think there's a sort of a bit of a myth out there that, you know, learning is easy. And actually it isn't. It's a huge change in neurons, in your body, in your behaviors, in everything you do. And that takes energy and, that ta and it takes time. So if you're going to invest time and energy, you really want to make sure you're investing it in, in the most appropriate way. So some of the things that you touched upon there uh, in describing sort of a, a effective learning have been things like, you know, attention, practice, uh, motivation, feedback. It, it's, it's very much a, um, a rich tapestry, if you will, when it comes to uh, pick up, picking up a new skill or, you know, a new body of knowledge. Um, is there a particular golden ratio here or is are they all as equally important as each other? Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, golden ratio, I probably couldn't, couldn't give you a golden ratio, but I think what's really important is you need to be motivated throughout that learning journey because, as I've said, you know, it can be a bit difficult. You know, you, you hit plateaus, you hit troughs, you hit pieces where it just feels like I'm not moving forward. So motivation is key and needs to be throughout the process. Um, we need time to, you know, to take in information and not to be cognitively overloaded with, you know, huge piles of information all at once, because we know from all the evidence that we will forget it. We're designed to forget. So forgetting is really good for us. So we need to make sure that what we do want to remember, we actually have some strategies in place to help us remember. We need time to make sense of that knowledge. We need time to kind of relate it to what we already know. We need time to explore it in kind of the context of where we work, because It'll be different, you know, where you work to compared to where I work, even if we were learning, so-called learning the same things. Um, and most of all, all, and for me, this is one of the most important pieces, it's not just the knowledge you learn, it's what you do with that knowledge. So those skills that you need to show that you have that knowledge. So whether those are cognitive skills, whether they're physical skills, doesn't matter. You need time to practice, to put into place and get really good feedback that helps you, you know, keep continuing to grow. Um, and also you need to be able to, if, if there is knowledge involved, which usually there is, um, you need to have the opportunity to, to keep repeating that knowledge, to, to recall that information 
rather than be presented back with it when we tend to recognize information. And when we recognize, we get this lovely warm glow of, oh, yes, I know that. But actually, in order for our um, memories to really work well and to embed things long term into our memory, we need to recall the information and use it ourselves. Which uh, sort of opens up the idea of atrophy and just being uh, exposed to something uh, is kind of a, a, it not being enough there as you related to um, to practice. Have you noticed anything when it comes to such a- atrophy that you know it becomes easier to relearn or to pick things up again if something hasn't been practiced, or is it very much starting from the beginning all over again? probably really depends on on your first experience of it. But if you have created, um, you know, some kind of connection in your brain with some new knowledge, a new skill, a new activity, the chances are that you won't have to go right back to the beginning again if you've, you know, you've, you've not used it for some time. Um, you know, and there are some things if you've learned them really well, you know, everybody says if you've learned to ride a bike, you never forget. You won't be as good if you suddenly, you know, if you take 10 years between riding a bike and the next time you ride a bike, you won't be as good and you're going to have to re, retrain those muscles, retrain those, you know, mental processes as well. Um, but you rarely go right back to the start unless you learn something on one day and you don't sleep you will have very, very, very little memory of it at all. And therefore, you would need to go back to the beginning. Oh, OK. So let's explore that idea of sleep then and even sort of alternating states of consciousness because, you know, our, our brainwaves are doing various things during the day. Um, so how does that actually work, the, the changing states of consciousness that we have and the effective retention of what we're learning? So we tend to um, remember what we pay attention to. So if we're paying attention to something, we tend to remember it. And, you know, there are all sorts of obvious reasons for that, that if you're paying attention to something, it's probably something great and you want to kind of do it again or meet it again. And if it's something unpleasant, you want to be aware that, you know, you, don't, you want to pay attention to it because you don't want to have that thing happen again. Or you don't want to meet that monster, whatever it might be again. Um, so attention is hugely important. So we tend to remember much more what we pay attention to. So when we're paying attention, that's great. But of course, there is stuff that goes into our brain when we are, but our brain behaves quite differently when we're, you know, kind of in that reflective, playful mode, um, particularly in that reflective mode when we've got what we call alpha waves going on. We become much more creative then. So you can learn in a, a different way. You might not be learning facts and figures, but you might be learning to connect things together. So it's really useful to have that kind of attention focused. I'm absorbing information. I'm practicing a skill, you know, willingly and consciously compared to the just going off and reflecting and allowing thoughts to connect together, which will happen. And that can actually build on your learning too. So it depends a bit where you are in your learning process and what you're trying to do. But you do need sleep. You know, I just said you need sleep because it's it's at night when we sleep and go into deep sleep that we build our long-term memories for the future. You mentioned their connections and and earlier there, the, the warm glow we get from, from learning something. These guys, this sort of goes straight to our favorite neurotransmitter, dopamine. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's ha- actually happening in the brain as we're learning something. Related to dopamine, you mean? Or, or just a, a skill in general? Generally. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's happening first off, and oh, this is going to be terribly simplified, I guess. Um, you know, your brain is a mass of neurotransmitters and it's a mass of electrical waves and it's, it's these neurons that are connecting. So when something new happens, 
effectively a new set of, if it's completely new, a new set of neurons are kind of fired, triggered to connect together. Now, what happens is electrical energy passes down those neurons and at the spaces between those neurons, the synapses, what happens is um, chemical chemicals are passed across. So, that's neurotransmitters that are passed across from one neuron to the other. And those neurons are then kind of like, oh, hello, you know, pleased to meet you. That's an interesting new idea. If you repeat that learning, if you repeat that practice, if you repeat that knowledge, that connection becomes stronger because you effectively build kind of fatty sheaths called myelin sheaths around the uh, the neurons, around the axons, and that actually helps the transmission happen faster. So once it happens faster and it happens again and again, there's also something called potentiation, which means that you know a, a, if two neurons meet and they keep meeting regularly, they're eventually kind of like much more likely to to bond together. So we talk about how neurons that fire together wire together. Um, and that, that's a very complex process and I can't possibly explain it without yeah. sitting down and <laughs> being very careful about it. Um, but basically it's saying that the more often we have those connections, the more likely those neurons are to fire together. Therefore, they will wire together and become a strong connection. So learning really is all about building strong connections and strong networks that relate to each other and, and, and allow you to, to go from kind of conscious processing to unconscious processing. And that's whether it's, you know, knowledge or skill. That's really interesting that there is that physical component to developing a skill as well, the, the uh, increasing robustness of, of the myelin sheets. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about dopamine then, which is, um, you know, it's, it's the key to modern technology, I suppose. It, it, it keeps us coming back to our favorite apps and games. So how does that actually affect our brains? In, in multiple, multiple, multiple ways. So everybody kind of has the connection between, you know, dopamine being a, a kind of pleasurable experience, you know, we're addicted to it. Um, and there's a huge amount of research on that. And, you know, all these game players are, are working with people to see how we can get our dopamine levels high. Neurotransmitters are neither good nor bad. They just do what they need to do to keep your brain doing what it needs to do and your body. Um so dopamine in excess uh, actually leads to schizophrenia. So you really don't want too much dopamine because that's really not good for you. Um, fortunately, our bodies are, you know, most people's bodies and brains are quite good at balancing it. But dopamine is something that makes us feel good in the short term. So we get this kind of, you know, dopamine rush that makes us think, oh, that was good. I'll, I'll do that again. So in terms of learning, it's, it's really valuable, but it's not the only neurotransmitter involved in learning. There are Certainly hundreds, and I think they're, they're talking about, you know, they're probably likely to discover thousands of neurotransmitters in the end. Um, other really important ones for learning are um, serotonin because that helps us. Again, it helps us feel good, but kind of over a longer period, and it helps us to persist at tasks. Um, we also have, you know, the sort of the uh, adrenaline is, is useful because it makes you pay attention to things. Um, so the whole pile of, it's, it's a cocktail of neurotransmitters, all of which are required at, you know, different levels. Some of them suppress excitatory neurons. Some of them increase excitatory neurons. Basically, you know, the whole science of neurotransmitters is phenomenally complex. They interact in many, many different ways. And dopamine is only one of our learning neurotransmitters. A lot of people say that, you know, they're auditory learners or they're, they're visual learners, that they have a particular learning style. Uh, is there anything to this idea? Sadly not. It's, a, it's just a myth. Um, 
I'm not even quite sure where it came from, but it became, you know, it became very popular. It's still popular in education. There's absolutely no evidence at all for learning styles. You might enjoy doing different things, but if you think about saying, you know, well, I'm a visual learner, um, can you ride a bike? Can you learn to ride a bike by watching videos or, you know, reading a book or looking at pictures? Of course you can't. Can you learn to, um, you know, to, to be a good communicator by watching videos? No, of course you can't. You've actually got to go and do some communication. So you might take in some information, but you certainly can't complete the full learning journey that you would requ be required, whether it's to ride a bike or to communicate effectively. Speaking of learning journeys there, well, of course, we've had a couple of very unusual years where classrooms in a lot of cases were shuttered and people moved online. Have you noticed any sort of difference in outcomes or difference in how people are learning or the effectiveness of what they're learning? One of the things I think is really great about digital learning is we tend not to do it in such big chunks. So when people used to, you know, they, they travel for miles and miles and they turn up at a training program, you know, face-to-face -face training program, still the face-to-face training, it has a, a, a purpose, but um, they would travel and they would spend, you know, a week because it wasn't worth flying people backwards and forwards or them going on the train backwards and forwards. And they'd spend a week learning something and they'd come away and they would remember some of what they'd learned. And that was great. The good thing about digital is it tends to be broken into much more bite-sized chunks over time. So, in terms of the, your brain taking in that information, processing it, beginning to consolidate it, have time to practice in the workplace, come back, add a bit more, digital can be well done it can be a really powerful way of actually supporting a much more natural learning process um, and can actually help us to, to build our skills. There are some challenges to digital. Um, some people love it, some people hate it, but I think that's more to do with how it's used than the fact it's, it's digital. Um, and, you know, I think we, we often think of digital as being, you know, whether it's Zoom calls or uh, Teams calls, there's many other ways of and forms of digital learning. And, you know, picking up your phone to look at a YouTube video as you're trying to change a plug, for instance, is a really, you know, a really useful way of beginning a learning journey. Um, eventually, if you do it sufficiently, you'll be able to wire the plug without looking at your, your video. But So, I think digital has, it's much more accessible very often than formal learning used to be. Um, it's often more space, so you get this kind of ability to, to micro-learn. Um, but of course, it's also very easy to get distracted when you're, you're digital. If, if the learning itself is not really engaging, then it's super easy to go off and look at your emails or look at something entirely different to where your attention is supposed to be um, focused. So, I think the attention piece is a challenge. And I think the other piece, and I think there is some investigation starting to happen now, some research beginning to happen. Um, around the, it's quite tiring because it's not natural for our brains. We haven't got, you know, we have evolved to have a very multi-sensory experience and we haven't got all those senses when we're digital. So, it's actually quite tiring for our brain because they're having to sort of fill in pieces. But I have also heard that in some ways it's better because your brain's not having to do quite so much work. So, I think the jury's out on, on whether it's good for our brains or not good for our brains yet. One of the uh, developments uh, that I've seen in recent times that has probably been around with us a, a lot longer is the notion of, you know, the standing desk or the yoga ball instead of a, a, a regular chair. Um, sort of ostensibly, these things are, are there to promote movement and to help your productivity during the day. Is there any science behind this to show that these things actually work? 
So certainly movement is hugely important for our, our brains and bodies. You know, if you have a, a fit body, your brain is more likely to be fit too. Um, we certainly are more likely to be paying slightly better attention if we're standing. We're getting more oxygen and more blood to our brain. Um, and, you know, you just tend to feel less physically slumped if you're standing. Um, and if you're on a, a ball and it's not too, you know, it's not causing you it's not too distracting. Again, it's just keeping your, your body kind of moving, which is the natural state for our body rather than being slumped. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, exercise, I'm not so much sure about a standing desk, but, you know, real proper exercise is really good for promoting um, brain, brain health and brain growth. So if you had one tip for somebody that is, you know, embarking on a new course or, you know, is doing their homework or something like that, what would it be? Um, I would say practice and get feedback. Put it into put it into practice and do something and get feedback. And that was Stella Collins chatting with Niall Kitson. Stella was a keynote speaker at Learnovation, which took place at Croke Park last week. You can find out more about the organisers from the Learnovate Centre at learnovate.ie. That website address, as always, in the show notes on your podcast player right now. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more for you at our website techcentral.ie. And of course, you can join us each week online on our podcast or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, and from Nile Kitson, have a great long weekend. Cheers. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.